Going Linux, episode 308, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want to send us feedback, you can email us at goinglinux at gmail.com or send us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. Well, Bill is off working today, or training, uh, or something like that for his work. And so uh, this will be another solo episode, but we have lots of interesting email to keep us company. So thank you for sending in your email. Charlie wrote, Just been listening to the podcast. I've been writing commercial software since 1975, just past Vietnam. I'm also a ham. I'm retired now. When it comes to commercial software, I've watched the industry evolve from selling mediums like tape, floppy, or CD to selling service contracts. They give the software away nowadays as the big money is spent in support contracts. Therefore, using a BSD or GPL license to do business to me would make no difference in the bottom line. It's people like Brian Lunduke who think the market is still about selling software via mediums like DVDs or software store downloads who are living in the past. Our market these days is websites and support agreements not selling software. I believe that in the long run, the concept of software ownership should just die and go away as you can't really buy any software anyway. The idea you can buy and transfer title to any software is total fraud. Thanks, Charlie. Well, Charlie, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's one person's opinion. And as you noted, there are several other noted folks who have other opinions. Of course, Brian Lunduke, former host of the Linux Action Show and now an employee of SUSE, uh, the SUSE Linux folks, the Open SUSE folks, and uh, also a podcaster, of course. And I'm not exactly sure about Brian's statements you're talking about, but I'm sure that SUSE is still selling DVDs of the SUSE product. And, of course, software sales on even Linux software stores or software boutiques or software repositories is something that many Linux distributions derive at least some income from. I don't know about it being a fraud for buying or transferring license to software. In fact, the GPL, the GNU public license and the various versions of that do allow you to sell the software that's licensed using the GPL and its various versions. So I think about the only way you can actually own software is if the license specifically says that you can own it and you can sell it and you can transfer title uh, and commercial software more and more is becoming less and less about ownership and more and more about 
licensing the right to use the software. That's the kind of license that Microsoft has for its Office products and even its Windows 10 operating system and the operating systems prior to that. You don't own it, even though you go to the store and put your money down and purchase a CD or a box with a link to something to download. You don't own it because the license agreement that you sign when you begin using it says that you're going to simply use the software under that license and that you don't actually own the software. So similar sorts of things with OS X and iOS and uh, many of the other commercial software programs out there, whether they're operating systems or even the applications that run on those operating systems. Linux is a little different and open source is a little different in that the license under which you acquire the use of the software also gives you the right to use software for whatever purpose you want, to give it away to other people, to sell it if you wish, to modify it, to do whatever it is you want it to do. And under certain kinds of open source licenses, certain versions of the GPL, certain other open source licenses that are out there. If you do modify it and give away that software or make it available for some sort of distribution to other people, you're required to give back the modifications that you have made to the original author of the software so that they can then evaluate it and determine is that an improvement that they want to add to their software for the next revision or iteration. So I think there are definitely ways to own software these days, uh, but I agree with you that commercial software in particular has become less and less about selling the software and more and more about not just selling service contracts, but also about licensing the software in a way that you agree that you don't own it, but rather that you have the right to use it under certain conditions. And those certain conditions can be limited number of computers that you run it on, certainly a condition not to modify the software in any way, and many other conditions that you can read in the EULA, the E-U-L-A, the End User License Agreement, uh, that pops up when you first run the software. And I'd encourage you to read through those things that you agree to, if only to find out what rights you have and what rights you don't have. And do that with Linux and open source software as well. And you'll notice a distinct difference between open source licenses and typical commercial licenses for software. Anyway, Charlie, thanks for that. Our next email is from Scott, who writes, Using Linux Mint 17.3 KDE 64-bit on an HP 8660P laptop, when I check all the wireless networks available using the internal wireless adapter, it only shows half of what it used to. It used to show 20 wireless networks and now only shows 10. It does not show any weaker wireless networks with about less than 35% signal strength. When I run the live DVD I used to install it, it shows all 20 wireless networks. Updated kernel version to 4.4.0-34 and installed Wicked WICD 
with the same results. When I tried using two USB wireless network adapters, I get the same result, not showing weaker wireless networks. Don't know what happened. I have not checked the wireless network since install and connected to my network. When setting up my wireless printer is when I noticed it only shows 10 wireless networks now. Thank you. Well, Scott, I am not sure what's at the root of that issue. I know that Ubuntu, which Linux Mint 17.3 is based on, has had some issues with wireless connections, Wi-Fi connections in the, not the most recent version of Ubuntu that's been released, but the prior version. And I suspect that in Linux Mint 18, perhaps issues like, maybe not yours, but issues like they've had in the past have been addressed. Now, your particular issue, I've noticed as well that the wireless networking has stopped showing weaker wireless signals, in particular when there are stronger ones available. I don't know whether that's intentional on the part of the developers who support Network Manager and Wicked and other Network Manager software like that, whether that's something built into the kernel to suppress those weaker signals. But if all you have is weaker signals, it will show you the strongest signals that you can connect to. So it sounds to me like those weaker signals are probably connections that you don't want to make anyway. If it is something that's intentional on the part of the kernel developers or the network manager developers, they're probably doing it with the understanding that you're going to want to connect to the wireless connections that have the strongest signal in any case. And suppressing the lower ones simply gives you less um, noise to work with. I have noticed as well that when I click on Network Manager under some distributions looking for a wireless connection, it lists the first several and then gives me a menu selection that allows me to show more. And then it shows a much more lengthy list. Uh, perhaps that's what you're referring to, or maybe you've just noticed that it just chops them off at the strongest 10. Again, I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that that's what's going on. The developers have said people don't want typically to connect to anything more than the strongest signals that they have. The strongest Wi-Fi signal is, of course, the one that is typically closest to you. And with that in mind, generally the one that you're going to want to use. And so showing you only the top 10 is not going to be a problem for most people. If it is a problem for you, Scott, I'd like to understand what your use case is where you're trying to connect to weaker signals, or is this just an observation on your part? Either way, get back to us, let us know. It'd be interesting to find out. Thanks, Scott. Bob wrote in saying, Hi guys, I switched to Linux for most of my computing back in April. Thanks in part to what I learned from you but I still need Windows for a few things. For instance, my Canon printer, K2, 
can send scanned documents to Windows, but not to my Ubuntu Mate laptop. The Windows laptop is much newer and faster than the laptop I use for Linux, and I'd like to make it dual boot for Windows and Linux. Before I do that, I need to figure out a way to protect myself with full disk encryption, but I can't find a solution that lets me do it in a dual boot system. I currently use VeraCrypt for full disk encryption on the Windows machine and encrypt just the home directory on the Linux machine. My goal is to ensure that if either laptop is ever lost or stolen, all content is absolutely inaccessible. I back up my data with SpiderOak, and I want to be able to just buy a new laptop, recover my data from SpiderOak, and carry on with just some inconvenience and no worries about identity theft, etc. The trouble is, I don't see any way to allow VeraCrypt or any other product to full disk encrypt a dual boot system. Maybe I'm not reading the resource or don't understand what I do read, but it seems that full disk encryption would leave the Linux system unbootable at startup and use VeraCrypt to encrypt only the Windows partition, and that would leave large parts of the disk unencrypted. That suggests that I'd still be at risk because of things either OS could write to unencrypted parts of the disk as part of their housekeeping operations. Is there anything I can do to safely encrypt a dual boot system and be sure everything important is inaccessible if it's ever lost or stolen? Thanks for your help. I love the show and wish you could do them more often. Bob. Okay, Bob, a couple of things going on there. Uh, full disk encryption, but also let's talk a little bit about the Canon printer. We've we've talked a bit about printers in the past, and the critical thing is, is your printer Linux supported? Uh, and typically, if it's not out of the box, and most printers are out of the box supported on Linux, but if it doesn't function properly by simply plugging in the USB port and letting Linux install its driver for that printer, then uh, you may have to go, in your case, to the Canon website and see if there are any drivers provided by Canon for Linux. And if so, that may be your, the solution to your problem. Scanners, uh, since this is a combination printer-scanner, uh, sometimes they can be problematic as well. And sometimes the driver for the printer doesn't include a driver for the scanner. So uh, scanners can be a little more problematic. There is a resource that we have for hardware compatibility. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. There are several links in that resource for hardware compatibility, and you can check those out for printers and scanners and combination devices like your Canon. Regarding full disk encryption, I think that if you have a dual boot machine to have full disk encryption may be a bit problematic because if you've encrypted the first operating system with full disk encryption, and you install a second operating system, you're bypassing that entire first system by creating new blank space on the hard drive for the new operating system. And so your full disk encryption that you previously applied to the first operating system you installed now is shrunk down to 
only the available space on the hard drive, then when you take the second operating system and create a blank partition within which you're going to create a file table and actually install a second hard drive, that blank partition doesn't exist with any readable or writable elements. And so the full disk encryption doesn't apply to it. Of course, as soon as you format that empty partition, it is readable and writable. And of course, that's how you can install the second operating system on it. But it's not encrypted. It didn't exist at the time that you applied full disk encryption. And so you can then apply full disk encryption to the second partition under the tools that you have for the second operating system. Uh, and I don't know whether that applies to the entire hard drive, including the other already encrypted disk. But I would suspect that full disk encryption on the first operating system applying to the first partition and full disk encryption on the second partition would be adequate. Um, you're booting into the BIOS or the equivalent of that, depending on how new your computer is. And then you're booting into the operating system, which then, of, of course, applies the encryption as you're booting up. What you're using is VeraCrypt, and with that, you encrypt after you've actually booted into the operating system. And with that in mind, I'm not sure that that actually is doing anything more than encrypting the partition that the operating system is on, as opposed to true full disk encryption. I'd have to read the documentation, and from reading your email, I'm assuming you've already done that, and perhaps it's not clear what it's doing there. What I would suggest is that you try the full disk encryption that gets applied as you're installing the operating system. Since you're using Ubuntu, encrypt the entire disk, including the Windows partition that is already presumably encrypted. So you're encrypting an encrypted drive, which I don't think will do any harm. Um, and of course, for those of you who haven't done dual booting, you typically want to have Windows installed first because it's not going to recognize anything but itself as an operating system. Uh, and then you'll install Linux in addition to that. And of course, Linux recognizes Windows as an operating system and will treat the Windows partition as something functional and gives you in the Grub menu an option to boot into Windows or into Linux. And of course, it's the Grub boot manager that you're using when you are dual booting for most Linux distributions, as opposed to the Windows boot manager. The critical question is, and I don't know the answer to this, is does full disk encryption, particularly since we're talking about Ubuntu here, from Ubuntu, get applied at the time of boot, at the time the boot manager begins to boot, or does it apply after Linux is booting or is beginning to boot or has booted? I don't know the answer to that. And perhaps some of our listeners would. And if so, please write in. Feel free to send us in an email with an explanation if you're familiar with how all this stuff works. And uh, feel free as well to send us a note on our Google Plus community that could be shared there. 
in a little more timely fashion than waiting for our next listener feedback episode next month. So, Bob, thanks for the email, and hopefully we'll be able to get a bit of an explanation for you by our next listener feedback. Our next email is from Richard, who writes, Hi, Larry. Hello, Bill. I'm catching up on your podcast and was listening to your feedback episode number 302, as you joked about how simple it is to install Linux alongside Windows 10. Not so fast. While you are correct, many times it is that easy. Let me tell you a short gun Linux the hard way. (laughs) I have several laptops that had (coughs) Windows 7 on them. Truthfully, I hardly use Windows at home anymore, but I am a technology specialist for my church, and they use Windows almost exclusively, so I do need it on occasion. To maintain them, I took advantage of the, quote, free Windows 10 upgrade. Well, two out of three ain't bad, right? The last one, I had problems with the Windows 10 upgrade as I had Symantec antivirus, and it told me that it was not compatible and offered to uninstall it for me. Well, three days later, I had totally rebuilt the machine from Windows 7 scratch and then upgraded. But the saga continues. I waited until Linux Mint 18 debuted and tried to boot from DVD. Nothing. Tried external DVD drive. Still nothing. Then I tried the hotkeys to select boot order. Nothing. Tried several other ways to access UEFI. Only after extensive research did I find a solution. I'm including a link your listeners might find helpful to get a Windows 10 computer to allow you to install Linux, but it is happily running on Mint 18 64-bit Cinnamon and haven't used Windows 10 on the machine since. And, of course, we will include... Richard's link in the show notes for you. Uh, And clicking on the link, it talks about how to access UEFI BIOS setup in Windows 8 and 10 on new PCs. And talks about hotkeys and using PC settings and various versions of how to access that. We've already included that link in our Google Plus community a little while ago, and I did, of course, want to share this with you here on the show as well, in case you do not use Google Plus or aren't part of our community. I would expect that since the computer had Windows 7 on it originally, it probably had a BIOS rather than UEFI, and I know that the link that you sent us includes some comments on that as well. So this is going to be interesting and useful for multiple people. Thanks, Rick. Our next email is from Paul, who wrote, Hi, Larry and Bill. The last few computers I've put Linux on have been old computers in order to extend their use. A couple of Dell laptops, Dell desktops, and Lenovo laptops. The last computers I built from new parts was several years ago, and I was an XP user at the time. In the past, I've used AMD processors exclusively in new PCs I built. I would like to build a new computer again, new case, motherboard, etc. Do you have a suggestion for a Linux-friendly motherboard? I have seen a couple of sites that show Asus, MSI boards are Linux compatible, 
compatible. Should I favor Intel or AMD processors with Linux? I don't need a gaming PC. Maybe you could point me toward a good site for hardware suggestions. I really enjoy the show. Thanks for your service to the Linux community. Paul in North Texas. Well, Paul, that link that I mentioned earlier on with hardware compatibility, that link is for you. That includes Linux-compatible motherboard listings as well. And as far as the processor is concerned, you certainly can't go wrong with Intel for the most part. I've seen some articles lately that indicate that perhaps some of their newest processors might uh, not be all that compatible with Linux for one reason or another. But uh, at any rate, uh, for the most part, Intel supports Linux very, very well. AMD, there are lots of Linux drivers for AMD processors as well. I haven't had a lot of experience with them, although the few computers that I have used that have AMD processors on them have installed Linux without any trouble at all. So I'm not sure that there's any problem using either one. But typically, I try to look for Intel chips for the processor and for the graphics processor and for network connections as well, because I know they're going to work and won't require any special configuration to get them to work with Linux. So if you can stick with Intel, you're pretty sure to have a Linux-supported machine, although AMD is probably going to work for you as well especially if it's listed in the hardware compatibility site, it will give you some additional information there about how compatible it is and if you're going to have any problems. So, Paul, thanks for the email. Next, Joran, right? Uh, and I hope I remembered how to pronounce your name correctly. Hello, and thanks for all your podcasts. In your episode 306, a listener, Brock, described an incident he had had with a script removing things that shouldn't be removed. A practice I have found good when writing Bash scripts is to give Bash the dash E flag. That is, instead of the first line looking like hash exclamation mark space slash bin slash bash, make it look like this hash exclamation mark space slash bin slash bash space dash E. That will stop the script on the first failing command. You don't have to check each command in the script. It's not a panacea. Scripts will go wrong even with this enabled. And sometimes a script has commands that should be allowed to exit with failure status. You will have to handle those cases explicitly. But I have found it a good default. As I understood the conversion script, it would have helped Brock. Well, thanks, Yuran. We really appreciate that, and uh, great that you can help out Brock with his bash issues. It certainly is something that we could all use. Next, Nancy comments, yep, the audio levels are great now. Thanks for hopping on it so quickly. Well, thanks, Nancy. It turns out that the issues were related to my editing, of course, and the editing issues I was having were because Bill's audio wasn't clean. I was trying to process the noise out. And in that processing, the volume, the perceived volume got very low. And I had to compensate for that by boosting the volume a little bit. And now that we're doing that, it seems to be working fine. And when Bill actually gets his new microphone, perhaps some of that background noise 
will go away and we'll have even cleaner audio going forward. Thanks. And now John replies, Aloha again, Larry and Bill. Mahalo for your suggestion to use TeamViewer to remotely access our shared Linux box that sits behind a VPN. As I had mentioned, all of our computers in our home network are running through a private internet access service, which makes a normal vanilla VPN connection challenging. Your suggestion to use TeamViewer with its free license for non-commercial use was exactly what we needed. I can't believe I hadn't heard of TeamViewer before. I can now access this computer or any of our other computers remotely. We can even access these computers through our smartphones. Please enjoy the attached sunset photo taken from our Ohana guesthouse. If you ever like to visit, just let me know. Thank you for making my long commute fun and entertaining. John, a.k.a. Island of Tiki. Beautiful photo. Thanks, John. And uh, thanks for getting back to us. I'm glad that TeamViewer worked out for you. And sometimes we don't hear whether our suggestions work out or not. It's great to hear when they do. Our next email is from Bruce, who writes, Hi, guys. I've wanted to investigate Linux for about 15 years, but my first attempt back then ended up in a disaster. The details are not that important now. Anyway, fast forward to today, having an Asus laptop which was no longer being used on a regular basis, I decided to take the plunge again. At least this way, all my day-to-day -day stuff is still on my Windows 7 64 desktop machine, and I can play on the laptop all I want. And if I break anything, it doesn't matter. I've installed Mint 18 Cinnamon, and I'm absolutely loving it. My career is as an audio engineer, the real reason for this email, which we'll revisit in a second. But my main hobby is photography. And one of the biggest hurdles I had to make the switch was to find something in the Linux environment which would compete with Adobe Lightroom. I'm happy to say that it didn't take me long to find Darktable, which is simply amazing. I'm currently in the process of writing a detailed blog post on how Windows users can migrate from Lightroom to Darktable and bring all of their hierarchical keywords and other metadata across without losing hundreds of hours of work already invested in Lightroom. I'll let you guys know when this is done. Okay, after that lengthy preamble, great work on the content of this podcast. I'm really enjoying it. You were up to episode 304 when I discovered you. I jumped back to about 280 or thereabouts and have been soaking up some of the older content, but listening to the new episodes as they appear. I was thankful to hear a couple of other listeners taking issue with the audio quality in 306 as I too felt the need to say something but didn't want to come across as a pedant. I have been a working recording mixing engineer for 30 years and have been creating podcasts since 2005. Yep, I was an early adopter. The audio issues you guys have had in the past are not simply based on the audio level. They are also related to equalization and dynamics. If you're interested in having a discussion in private, I'd be happy to assist you guys in getting a more consistent audio quality. I too hate having to adjust my playback volume depending on who is talking. Feel free to reply if you'd like some help with this. If not, that's okay. And keep up the great podcast. Cheers from Down Under, 
Bruce. Well, Bruce, thanks for the offer. Uh, I realize that it is more than just the audio levels, and I have kept it simple because unlike you, most of our audience is not audio engineers, and so I didn't want to get into the gory details. I am certainly not as expert as you, so if we can arrange a convenient time for us to communicate by phone or Skype or some other communication method, uh, I'd be happy to have a discussion with you and see if there's anything that I can do that I'm not already doing as part of my audio mixing process. I think most of the issue was the fact that I wasn't previewing the audio before sending it out, and that was a dumb rookie mistake, for sure. Anyway, um, I appreciate your feedback on your experiences with Linux Mint 18. I'm happy that you are one of those people who, after an initial failure with Linux early on in its history, that you stuck with it, or went back to it, rather, and found that today's Linux is much, much easier to use, much, much easier to install, and for most people, it just works right out of the box as it did for you. Bruce, good hearing from you, and we'll be in touch for sure. Thanks. And our final submission is a Gone Linux story from Dylan, who's provided us an audio Gone Linux story. In his email, he wrote, Thanks for the great podcast. I have a Gone Linux story, but you'll have to listen to the attached MP3 to find out. I really enjoy you guys. Bill, you're more than just a sidekick to me. Now, here's Dylan's story. Hey, Bill, Larry. My name is Dylan, and I've got a Gone Linux story. So... When I entered college, I got a Dell Latitude E6410 and had Windows 7 on it. Uh, I never used it. I had another computer I liked a lot better. And it always seemed really slow, even compared to my classmates' laptops, even though they had the exact same model computer. So that was really weird. Well, after college, it was just completely unusable. It was super slow, and it froze and crashed like every single time I tried to use it. So... I was looking for a way just to get rid of the computer, and I figured, well, I've got to wipe the hard drive. And that's actually how I found Linux as a way to destroy all the data on the hard drive. So I figured, you know, putting an entirely new operating system would probably wipe out the hard drive pretty good. So I installed Ubuntu 16.04, and I was just messing around with it, and I'm like, this is actually really cool. I like this a lot. So I am now actually writing this feedback on that computer. Unfortunately, I am not recording that feedback because I have to go to work. I work at a radio station. I'm using the, the studio there to record this feedback. So I'm sorry, but I did write the original, you know, the little script thingy. I did write that on the Ubuntu computer. So absolutely love it. I have downloaded maybe a dozen different flavors of Linux and just going around playing with them. I love your podcast so much, and thanks for putting it on. Well, thanks, Dylan. And I was amazed at the audio quality, and now I know why. Uh, you're recording in a recording studio. That's fantastic. And uh, hey, don't worry about not using Linux to do the recording. Um, you know, we use the tools at hand that are available to us and the ones that do the best job, at least we here at Going Linux do. And we have been fortunate enough to find ways to make it all work using only Linux for what we're doing. And uh, you, eventually you'll find uh, a lot of the tools that you'll need to do this. Uh, of course, 
connecting the hardware, the microphone, the mixer, and all that sort of thing to your Linux computer is another story, but certainly there are lots of software programs out there for doing audio, like Audacity and OBS for doing audio and video, and lots of other tools that we've discussed here on the show have links to in our not only show notes, but the articles that we have on our website, and so plenty of resources there. And if uh, you decide you want to get into audio recording on Linux and want to send in some questions around that, I'd be happy to answer them for you as well. So Dylan, thanks again. I'm happy to hear your Gone Linux story. It's certainly one that many of our listeners have gone through personally, very similar sort of story, trying something that leads them to Linux and then finding out that, hey, there's this whole new world out there that is Linux, uh, open source software, and then become uh, a fan, if not an advocate, of both Linux and open source in general. So Dylan, keep those feedback stories coming. We appreciate hearing them. Our listeners appreciate hearing what other listeners are doing with Linux as well. So again, thanks, Dylan. Well, that's it for this episode. Our next episode will be another user experience episode. And if we can get it done in time between Bill's uh, work hours and training hours, uh, it, it will be the Today's Backup Technology episode. And uh, if not, we will have another exciting topic for you. So until then... You can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.